Happy anniversary, Caitlin. Yes. Happy anniversary. It's hard to believe we launched one year ago this week. And what a year it's been. Two seasons, a road trip series. Any Mm -hmm. standout moments for you? Well, I don't think I'll ever get over Amy Grant joining Mm -hmm. us. And Mm -hmm. I also keep thinking about that fairies comment we heard in the park. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word evangelical? Um, fairies. Fairies? Yeah. Fairies for some reason. The forest with fairies in it. Who could ever forget the fairies? From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way and making a podcast in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Welcome to season three of Saved by the City. It's going to get wild and probably a little bit weird. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. This week is not just our podcast anniversary. It's a pandemic anniversary too. Two years. Two (laughs) years ago this week, New York City shut down because of a novel coronavirus. Something that was being called COVID-19. And I don't know about you, but it seemed like, okay, we'll go inside for two weeks of quarantine, and this is going to be an interesting two weeks. And That's what everybody said. They kept saying that on the news. You'll be in <laughs> two weeks, two weeks. And I thought that was going to be, like, really hard to do. Well, it was hard to do, and then it kept getting harder. It was not just two weeks. Spoiler. Recently, a coworker had someone from the Smithsonian contact him about donating pandemic artifacts to the museum. <laughs> like like for a pandemic exhibit? Maybe, or maybe just they like collect items as they go, knowing like this will be something that they'll want to exhibit someday in the future for maybe our great-great-grandkids who want to know what living through the COVID-19 era was like. That sounds like a depressing museum. Like, we don't have a Spanish <laughs> flu of 1918 museum. Well, we probably do, but do, I would yeah. not. I will not go to it. It's just. <laughs> I'm sort of imagining this wandering around these very somber hallways, looking at homemade cloth masks and social distancing signs. There will be a TV playing Tiger King on an endless loop. Our great grandkids are going to judge us so hard. But say you were curating a COVID-19 exhibit. What pandemic artifacts would go in your museum? I would definitely have this one super complex wooden puzzle that took me like two weeks to complete. And I had like a dozen bowls of puzzle pieces sorted in my kitchen. So you got really into the puzzling craze? It's the only one I did. And then I was over it. (laughs) So you did it the first two weeks of the pandemic. And then you were like, ah, this got me through. Kinda, yeah. And then I moved on. So if I were curating a COVID-19 exhibit, well, (laughs) 
I can't say that I had the most healthy coping mechanisms. <laughs> um, for some reason, I really latched on to White Claw in that season <laughs> of life. So at the end of a lot of days, I would like go to the local bodega and pick up a White Claw tall boy. Oh, wow. Uh, I played a lot of games on my iPad. Ironically, they were games about, they were like survival games. <laughs> like, like the 2020 version of uh, Oregon Trail. Yeah, yeah. One of them was about like stopping a global pandemic. Uh, I'm sure there's an interesting psychological reason why I was playing games about pandemics. I was watching Black Mirror episodes, which also not a super <laughs> smart thing to do. Yes, I watched a movie that came out like a decade ago called Contagion. Oh, yeah, me too. About a global pandemic. There was something about watching. Mm hmm that helped process the current moment. I will have a lot of takeout boxes in my mm. COVID museum. Wine bottles. Yeah, some of those too. <laughs> I sat on my stoop a lot. Yeah, I sat on your stoop. Yeah, we did. A couple times. I mean, once we kind of like got to the point where we were like, okay, we Let's can figure out people. how to see each other. Yes, that made a huge difference. It did. We had a picnic um, with friends at the seminary. So I would put a picnic basket or a picnic blanket in my museum. I also imagine this COVID-19 exhibit would have some recognition of the Black Lives Matter protests yes. that happened in June of 2020. It was one of the largest or maybe the largest global sustained global protest. Of course, there were people protesting other things. <laughs> Not all of the protests were Black Lives Matter related. So in the exhibit, there would probably be some anti-mask signs, signs that say my body, my choice. Huh. And then there were stop the steal signs yes. later on. Lots of stop and then the there steal were signs. Anti-vaccine signs. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So the last few years have been a lot. They've been collectively a lot, individually a lot. And I think what we're getting at in these later rooms of our museum is like, this was a really divided time and mm -hmm. the pandemic heightened emotions around everything. I mean, I've never, you know, the school boards, people were like getting thrown out of school boards over mask mandates. You know, I mean, it's just kind of like what has happened? Yeah. And it's significant to realize that the political divides don't just exist at protests on signs. It's also affecting relationships. I know you and I were in a Slack mm -hmm. conversation just a few weeks ago with some other media mavens, media mavens. And we were talking about mask requirements for churches and how mm -hmm. more churches have kind of dropped any kind of masking. Of course, you know, no churches, to my knowledge, are like checking vaccine status, right. but just dropping the masks entirely. And such strong feelings on both sides of the aisle about whether this is good or not, you know. Right. And I remember someone telling a story about like, um, I don't remember if it's their mom or their aunt, but basically like cutting ties with a cousin over vaccines and how much like how the pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine um, crowds have just, I mean, that's, it's become a division that's like literally affecting families and tearing them apart as well as like churches and school boards and all of these things. I mean, it's something that, I don't know, it just, it was weird to me when we were having that Slack conversation, like it seemed like everybody had a story about mm -hmm. something really personal that we're 
being affected or falling apart because of pandemic-related issues. So would you say that you have felt the divides personally in your relationships? Thankfully, not in really close relationships, like with my family. Um, You know, I I think, you know, by the grace of God, we're all on the same page about um, vaccines and mask wearing and the seriousness of the pandemic. And, and I'm just forever grateful, you know, that my parents who are older did not get COVID during the pandemic, but asked. But I think when I really felt it was when I got home and there were several incidences um, where I just, I felt really uncomfortable masked. Like I would wear the mask into the grocery store and it'd be like, I'd be the only one at the grocery store masked. And this was like before the vaccine. Mm-hmm. A, a confrontation at a bank with the bank manager because I was masked um, and he did not want to be, um, but he wanted to like, I needed him to notarize something. And he was like, come into this room um, anyway. And I was like uncomfortable because he wasn't masked and it was a whole thing. Wait. And what happened? Like, <sighs> did you guys get into an argument or something? Like yeah. what? Yeah. And it was, so you, so you I walked was into really the bank worked up about it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can have a lot of opinions. I really do. But I like that kind of personal confrontation really, really throws me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I walked into the bank. I needed to have something notarized. It was my parents' bank, small town. Um, and he, the manager of the bank needed to sign to needed to notarize it. He was like, well, come into my office. And I was like, like it was a small office he wasn't masked like most of the people in there weren't masked and I and I was like well could we do it out here or could you put on a mask and he was like well you can go somewhere else then if you don't Mm. you know so he was just like you can go take your business somewhere else but then of course like I didn't let it drop um and what did you say I don't remember now exactly also (laughs) like I just because I I can't remember those kinds of things I mean I didn't say anything to write home about I'm sure I just sort of like was flustered you know and yeah it didn't help when I showed him my driver's license from New York City he's like ah you know you think you're better than us you're Rocky's big city daughter who thinks she's better yes (laughs) so it was just really I mean it was just really it was really escalated and I remember and I walked out and I was just like what just happened? Mm-hmm. Like, this is like the neighborhood bank, you know? And and I've always thought of my hometown and the towns right around there as being very, like, very neighborly and very, like, everybody cares for each other. And if somebody's sick in the hospital, you can count on them to bring your family food and, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it strikes me going back to the altercation. What was going on wasn't really, I mean, yes, of course, on one level, it was about masks, but it also seems like it was a confrontation about what do you think of me? Uh, And then you might be feeling like, are you judging me because you think that I'm a sheeple or just going with the, what the government, you know, like you're not an independent thinker. Like it seems like the masks and the vaccines and a host of other issues are hard because they touch on questions of identity and mm-hmm. how other oh, yeah. people perceive us. They're just, they're behind the masks, so to speak, are like these really deeply held beliefs absolutely, about the world. And they're not just agree to disagree issues. And they're really hard 
to sit down and talk about. It feels like we don't really have the tools for talking about our differences without it feeling really heated really quickly. Yeah. And I mean, part of it, part of the reason I think it gets heated so quickly is that there are a bunch of words and symbols that sort of just trigger people right now. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you could call them trigger words, you could call them virtue signaling, depending on which side you are. But it's like they just (laughs) they they are so loaded at this point that it's like Mm -hmm. people just as soon as you see those words, you shut down or you explode. Mm -hmm. I mean, depending Mm -hmm. on your personality type, I guess. Or you look at someone and maybe, you know, you see their bumper sticker, you see Mm -hmm. that they're wearing a mask or not or whatever, a number of things. You look at their driver's license and see that it's from New York and you have an image of your mind. Oh, you're this kind of person. Mm -hmm. You believe this, you vote this way, you dress this way, you make this much money, you value this. It's like we're in such a binary categorization mode that we are, we're like, easily we're trying to sort the people around us into categories and with the masks and vaccines it feels like well are you on my side or are you not and if you're not Mm -hmm. you are not just wrong but potentially like a threat to my values and I I know that it's not binary and yet like I really had trouble going home and like not feeling that way Mm mm-hmm and even this last Christmas when I went home, when there are vaccines and it, and it, it, it didn't feel as escalated, mm-hmm. I just can't quite feel the same sense of safety as I did before the pandemic happened, which mm-hmm. is really feels tragic to me. And I, I personally don't want it to feel that way. <laughs> like that, mm-hmm. like home has always been a safe place for me, a, a respite, you know, but I, I, I'm genuinely searching for like, ways to get over that. And I've just been surprised at how hard that's been for me. Like, that feels uncharacteristic for me. And I think that speaks into the level of trauma and division that we've all experienced in the last two years. Well, we've gone through something that we haven't gone through before. Right. Some might say it was unprecedented. I don't know if you heard that at all, but we are living in unprecedented times. Have people been saying that? Yeah. I I mean, I don't know if you've ever, like, if you ended up, like, leaving your apartment or the stoop, but I just, I heard people saying that. (laughs) One of the really disappointing aspects of this was covering how much these divisions affected churches um, Mm -hmm. and were playing out within churches. Um, You know, I think at the beginning there was, you know, we we covered a lot of like, gosh, these clergy are having to do so many funerals and, you Mm -hmm. know, like the ways that churches were really like innovating and rallying and doing all of this stuff, but then it just kind of devolved and... And it became like, like weekly, the sort of national drama was like playing out within churches and between congregants. And that too felt like another in a series of betrayals, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, again, going back to this sense that we're supposed to share these foundational beliefs Mm -hmm. or we just kind of assume that because we uphold the same beliefs or worship in the same way that surely we're also on the same page about all these other core issues. And then when you find out that you're not, it feels much harder to process and accept than 
disagreeing with an old high school friend on Facebook where you're like, I didn't really like them anyway. <laughs> or or whatever, you know, like yeah. if if you can't feel of one accord in the church mm-hmm. at its best at least, where where can you find that? I feel a little bit like and I could just be making this up because it's a new season of the podcast. It's almost a new season of the year, spring. I recently had a birthday. So I kind of feel like we're like in a new mm-hmm. era. Like we've turned something of a corner. I mean, on the pandemic, there's there's new horrors unfolding in the world. But I do kind of want to look forward now. Like what, mm-hmm. like how do we recover from the pandemic? Not just economically, not just, you know, in terms of our social norms and going back to offices or whatever, but like, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we move forward collectively and repair some of the damage that's been done between like relationally on an individual basis, as well as maybe larger groups. But Yeah. I want to know that as well. It seems, I mean, it's, it's foolish to predict the path of a global pandemic, but just, Informally, it seems like people are traveling more. You know, I have my first speaking engagement in a few weeks, and it was mm-hmm. originally mm-hmm. scheduled for March 2020. And of course, it was canceled. Mm-hmm. And we finally rescheduled it. And of course, there, there are risks. And then we're also doing things to mitigate the risks. But it feels like people are ready to find new rhythms of daily life. But it sounds like part of that also needs to be how do we... How do we move forward in our relationships and assess the divisions that have been revealed over the last couple of years and work to heal some of them? Exactly. That is why we thought it would be perfect to bring on a couple of guests who wrote a book called You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation. It felt like they might have something to say to us. It's a really good title. Today, we'll be talking to another podcasting duo, the powerhouse team behind the podcast Pantsuit Politics. Church is just us. School is just us. The government is just us. Like, we don't have to ask somebody else. It's us. Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers. I think we need a little bit of a truth and reconciliation moment within churches. You know, the hardest part about church is that everything should belong there. Our conversation with Sarah and Beth is coming right up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews make a big impact and help listeners find our podcast. One recent reviewer wrote, Saved by the City is, quote, smart, engaging, witty, mm-hmm. check, 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 mm-hmm. and a pleasure to listen to. Check. I feel like I'm a third wheel at the coffee shop gabbing about something important. I love that. We are gabbers. <laughs> <laughs> or send us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you. Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers are the hosts of Pantsuit Politics Podcast, named by Apple Podcasts as one of the best shows of 2021. They are the authors of I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, 
a guide to grace-filled political conversation, and the upcoming Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided About Basically Everything. Visit PantsuitPoliticsShow.com to learn more about streaming the podcast as well as their books and live events. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Beth. Thanks so much for being here. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So to get started, um, I'm wondering if you could speak into how you think the last, let's just say two years. Let's just, you know. <laughs> let's just pick a date. March 2020. Date around yeah. right now. <laughs> so in the last two years, how would you say people's personal politics have changed? Not so much national or party politics, but individuals on an individual level, the way that they relate to politics or identify with politics. How have you witnessed that changing? When Trump was elected, Beth had this phrase where she would say, I feel like he just reveals who you are. Mm. And I think that's true of the pandemic, too. Like, it just re- it just revealed and accelerated your personal politics. How do you see political conflict escalate in your personal lives in the last few years? We'll definitely have different answers to this, especially the how, how do we respond piece, because our personalities are so different. Um, <laughs> how are your personalities different? I am much more of a peacemaker. So when mm-hmm. conflict hits in my personal life, my instinct is to be very still. And just observe and listen and take in and try to figure out how can I be Mm -hmm. a balancing force. So for me, I don't even know if I've seen a lot of escalated conflict as much as I have seen a level of anxiety that is surprising to me. Just almost a paralysis about the anxiety of should we do this or that? Are we are we going to this place or not going to this place? I've seen a little bit in my church of people just leaving because they felt that our church was liberal because of its pandemic hygiene standards. Mm-hmm. Um, that hasn't been directly in my face. It's just kind of happened in the background. And so seeing all that stress around me, my reaction has to has been to try as much as I can to be like this really grounded force. Everything is going to be okay. We are making the best decisions that we can. It's okay that those decisions are different. Um, I am not as good as Sarah is at kind of stepping into that conflict and saying, (laughs) no, let me tell you what we need to all hear right now. Um, And so I think that's why we have a good partnership and, and a good um, a good business balance for each other because Sarah is much more willing than I am to step into that kind of conflict. Whereas I want to like assess the scene and say, what is mm. this? What does this scene need? And how can I be that so, right now? Mm-hmm. I mean, I always joke that when we walk into a room, Beth feels immediately responsible for everyone's feelings. I feel absolutely no responsibility. <laughs> you know, you need both types feelings. of people in the world um, for sure. Yeah, I just don't. I don't. You know, because I have no control over how other people feel. Um, and so, you know, that's just my personality. I just sort of, I don't, I, I feel responsibility to sort of what she says to like, speak the truth. Like, I'm not afraid of conflict. So if that comes with conflict, mm-hmm. fine. Because I do feel very much so that conflict can be a form of care. Mm. I know that sounds bananas to people who are, you know, really allergic to conflict. And I try to respect that. You know, I don't force people into conflict when they're not interested in it um, because that doesn't really work either. But, you know, I think in my own life, you know, my father is on the absolute opposite end of the political spectrum of me as me. Mm -hmm. And we had, you know, he does not he does not see conflict as care. And so we've just had to sort of like work through that repeatedly and see it as like an Mm. exercise in curiosity with one another and 
I always say with the last two years, like, it was a really powerful exercise to see people, because I live in a pretty purple area. I know I live in Kentucky, and that sounds crazy, but where I live, there are <laughs> Democrats that <laughs> exist. And, um, and so I had people that I knew and love and respected who I thought hmm. took COVID way too seriously mm-hmm. and people who mm-hmm. didn't take it seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And so that was just that was good. That was just a good place to be in, to not like be in this bubble where I could convince myself there was only one way to be and be a good person. Um, and so I think that helped sort of the conflict surrounding the pandemic in my own life and my own personal relationships and just like talking about on the podcast, being a, a person in the world and. But I think, yeah, there was just so much anxiety and, you know, people, we, we mm-hmm. see it. We see it with like customer mm-hmm. service. We all see it in all these places. People just mm-hmm. lash out when they're like that, mm-hmm. when they're stressed, when they're anxious, mm-hmm. when they're threatened. Um, there's yeah. just been a, a lot of lashing out for sure. Because of sort of the work that Caitlin and I do um, as religion journalists, we have observed that one of the places of deepest division through all of this has seemed to be within churches. Um, From mass mandates to QAnon conspiracies, like all of it, vaccine hesitancy seems to have played out in like these mini dramas at churches. Um, If you were talking to a pastor right now who's kind of trying to navigate all of these divisions in his or her church, like what how would you counsel them in terms of how do we, how do you take this church forward and these relationships forward? And we'll just continue alternating and start with you, Beth, if you have thoughts. I think we need a little bit of a truth and reconciliation moment Mm. within churches. Mm -hmm. You know, the hardest part about church is that everything should belong there. There are not a lot of spaces where you say everything really belongs um, in, in a business, you can say, well, we might have disagreement over this policy, but at the end of the day, this is the policy and we're all going to follow it. In a civic organization, you have got to pick a direction and go. In a church, you know, there there is a sense that at least all of our feelings should have a place here. Not carry the day, but but have a place where they can get some space around them and someone mm-hmm. can care about them and tend to them. You know, for me... A thing that I am working on myself that I think would be useful if I were a pastor is a list of my COVID mistakes Mm. so that I can enter conversations with that posture of humility and and that invitation that like we don't have to fight out who was right about what happened here because this was very hard for all of us. Let's talk through my experience of it and yours and see what we learn from that. I think that would be a beautiful way for churches to to start to move forward here. Just opportunities for people to tell the story of what happened. And if they could rewrite that story, uh, what changes might they make looking looking back? I would say bless you. There's not enough money in the world for me to be a pastor <laughs> or a school principal. <laughs> I would say, going back to your earliest question, sort of what has what did the last two years revealed I think it has revealed that we interact mm-hmm. with church as consumers mm-hmm. and not as congregation members and Same I would word. encourage any pastor to take a hard look at what role they played in that because mm-hmm. almost every pastor has um, thinking about responding to setting up you know, church in a way that rewards that behavior, 
that accepts that behavior as like this is the way we interact here is we act like consumers. And I think and that's not to blame. I just don't I don't think the posture should be like you you guys in the pews, you're the worst because you act like consumers. Right. That's not going to help mm-hmm. anything. I think it's sort of a, a reflection of like, how do we get here? How do we get here when if somebody said something we didn't like, we peaced out? Mm-hmm. Now, look, I mean, the jokes about Baptist Church and the three Baptist Church with the one guy on the desert island, they've been around a long time, right? Like, it's not, this isn't necessarily totally new where people bounce right. if they don't like something, but... It's a Protestant issue. I think it's, like, endemic to Protestants wanting to split. Yeah, they'll be like, I don't like it. I'm out. But, like, what would happen if church started sort of, like, pushing and asking the hard questions again instead of trying to make people comfortable because they're mm-hmm. there to consume? This is a good inflection point to ask ourselves, like... What are we doing here and why are we trying to do it together? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, some people are going to have an answer that is going to lead them somewhere different. And that's okay. I just it's as an institution, like all of our institutions, like they're struggling. They're struggling from a sort of Mm -hmm. distrust we have of one another. Mm -hmm. But they're just us. Church is just us. School is just us. The government is just us. Like We don't have to ask somebody else. It's us. Yeah. And, you know, if there's hard questions to ask the institution, that means there's hard questions we need to ask each other. I wonder if the church divisions feel especially hard, not only because church is supposed to be this place where everyone belongs, but also because the political convictions that we have feel like theological or spiritual issues, like they've risen to the place of ultimate concern instead of secondary Everybody's trying to make prudential judgments about what to do in a really complex moment. And so if we disagree about mask wearing or vaccines, this isn't just, wow, we just see the world differently. It's like, wow, you don't worship the same God. (laughs) Or we have such radically different conceptions of what Christianity means that we can't fellowship together. And obviously, I think that that is a detriment, but it speaks to how politics place such a central role even for people who would say that is that should be secondary like right right like the the kingdom of man is not the same as the kingdom of god but we're sucked into it just as much as everybody else is caitlin the the words that you were just using are words that we have needed throughout the pandemic just clear categorization of what we're talking about so outside of church i think we've done a poor job as a society of talking about what is science and what is policy um, what is human psychology versus epidemiology? Um, and I think within churches, that categorization of now we're talking about a theological issue, but in a second, we're going to talk about a prudential issue. We have to we have to decide what our values are, what's the foundation for how we're moving forward. But then we are going to get into a place where reasonable people on the same mm-hmm. ground of theology could disagree. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. But we have to make a prudential judgment. I think if we could speak to those categories more often, we speak on college campuses all the time and are just trying to talk with students as you consume information. What is news and what is opinion? You know, and and we don't do a good job like saying, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Here's the bucket we're in right now. We can move to another one in a second, but let's all agree that this is where we are. So I think pastors adopting some of the language that you used in describing this as they put decisions or topics to the congregation would be really helpful. I just think what's so hard about that is in a pandemic, like they're all wrapped up together. They are. We are talking about matters of life and death. And how Mm -hmm. do you bucket those away from 
like policy that affects people's life and death is inherently diff- I, I always kind of got mad when people would say mm. we politicized the pandemic. Mm. Well, of course we did. That's what politics is. Like Beth says, like politics is just how we live together in community. And so, of mm-hmm. course, mm-hmm. it was politicized. Like that's what we're supposed to do. We're trying to figure out the rules governing these really difficult topics, including public health surrounding you know, a deadly virus. And so I think that's that's I think government gets swept up in that trap. I think um, churches get swept up in that. Schools obviously get swept up in that because we do want to it's really difficult to sort of categorize and and inform the conversation with our values and our priorities Mm -hmm. in a way that is productive instead of harmful. Like that's just that's that's work that's never done. Even if you don't do it well, asking the question, I think, could lower the temperature in some of these conversations. Because mm-hmm. the, the most unhelpful thing, in my opinion, that's happened during the pandemic is tying everything together as this is a life and death decision or this is a you care about mm-hmm. small business or you don't decision. Like like continuing to say that everything <laughs> is about everything during the pandemic is why a lot of us can't speak to each other anymore. So That's even if we don't point. agree what is prudential versus theological, asking the question mm-hmm. might help us take a step back from a less destructive place. I think that's where grace comes in. Like whether we can perfectly sort this out or not, whether asking the question helps us see it more clearly or not. I think those when we made it about everything, mm-hmm. when we when we do that, when we get in that space, we say, but I'm going to give you the grace that you mm-hmm. aren't trying to kill people that you don't care about kids or you want all the old people <laughs> to die. I'm going to I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to jump to you want so and so to die. Like and I think that's mm-hmm. what I always say when I say I'm a covid moderate is like I couldn't do that with the people in my community. I knew them too well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's easy to do that about so and so anonymous person in a news story or even like somebody you know in your your life because you are or like in a in a close personal relationship. But I was in this place where it's like they were just close enough and just far enough that it wasn't easy for me to just flip a switch, right? And there were right. also too many people in my life mm-hmm. that of both stripes that I could mm-hmm. see like, oh, I'm not that way. I'm not all the way this way. Um, and also I just think it's, again, it's that giving of grace. It's back to what Buzz says, like, you know, when we make it about everything – which I, I do think to a certain extent is inevitable. Like we have to, we also have to have this rule of like, okay, well we have to give each other grace and we maybe are escalating that particular issue, but maybe the escalation is as dangerous if we give each other the benefit of the doubt as we're doing well, it. Yeah. I mean, I think hearing you talk about that, I think about the ways that my hackles get up over things that are probably symbolic. And I'm, you know, I'm hearing like, this isn't theological. And I go, yes, it is because it's human dignity. It's life and death. And like, I'm suddenly like down a path. Whereas Mm. I think what struck me about what you're saying is to reflect and say, there are ways that we turn these symbolic things into these massive issues that the other person isn't thinking about it that way, but we've Mm -hmm. suddenly like are like boiling. Another takeaway is that people don't like to be told that they want other people to die. Just like as a as a general rule. Yes. America, if we yeah. can take one thing, please, 
Psychopaths are such a small percentage of the population. The chances that you're encountering them that regularly on Facebook are very low. Very, very low. I mean, it just happens to be all the people I disagree with. It's just exactly weird coincidence. That is very weird. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. This was a lovely conversation. And thank you for being grace-filled in answering some pretty tricky questions. Oh, thank Thank you. you for having us. Yeah, we were really really excited to have you both on so thank you oh thank you well we have so many season three ideas and a lot of great guests and topics coming your way over the next couple of months we think you'll be surprised and please maybe pleasantly surprised smash that subscribe button smash it bro Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.